Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the State Historian and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. In this episode, join Mary Donahue, assistant publisher of Connecticut Explored, to explore how Elizabeth Park in Hartford became the home to the first public rose garden in the United States more than a hundred years ago. Hi, it's Mary Donahue for Grading the Nutmeg. Visitors have been enchanted by the thousands of soft and fragrant rose petals in Elizabeth Park's Rose Garden since it opened in 1904. Climbing roses intertwined in overhead garlands, hybrid tea roses, and heritage roses in every color symbolize romance, friendship, and passion. Elizabeth Park is the home to the country's oldest public rose garden. Visitors by the thousands come to stroll in the rose garden and sit in the vine-covered gazebo. Generations of prom goers as well as wedding parties have had their pictures taken there. But how did Elizabeth Park become the public park it is today? How did Frederick Law Olmsted, a contested will, and a beloved wife all become part of the story? Let's start that story with Hartford's first public park, Bushnell Park. Hartford's first park, Bushnell Park, is in the heart of downtown Hartford adjacent to the Connecticut State Capitol. It was named for Reverend Horace Bushnell, its prime promoter. Bushnell believed that one must go to nature to understand God, and he persuaded enough people that the city needed a spacious public ornamental ground to make the park a reality. Hartford citizens voted in 1854 to accept the plan for Bushnell Park, making it the first municipal park in the United States to be conceived of, built, and paid for by a city through popular vote. Hartford proceeded to build an enviable park system that benefited from the generous nature of some of its wealthiest citizens. Between 1894 and 1900, a profuse addition of parkland occurred, known as the Reign of Parks. This outpouring of civic pride and philanthropy added 1,000 acres of parkland, including Elizabeth, Pope, Keeney, Goodwin, and Riverside. In 1905, Elizabeth Jarvis Colt, left the Colt Estate to the city for use as a city park. Each section of the city was served by a large municipal park. They ringed the city and often spilled over the city line to the adjoining towns in open areas that had not yet been suburbanized. In 1839, wealthy Hartford businessman Charles Floyer Pond purchased 33 acres of land on Hartford's western edge adding 16 acres in 1857 for a total of 66 acres. A graduate of Yale Law School, he served as president of the Hartford and New Haven Railroad Company. His estate was divided by Prospect Avenue. The eastern part was in Hartford and the western part in the neighboring town of West Hartford. The estate was known as Prospect Hill Farm. By 1859, Sia Pond raised thoroughbred Ayrshire cattle, a prized livestock. His estate might be called a gentleman's farm or a hobby farm, owned as it was by a wealthy businessman and including a working farm. C.F. Pond died in 1869. His oldest son, Charles Murray Pond, inherited the estate. The following year, Charles M. Pond married Sarah Elizabeth Aldridge. Successful in his own right, Pond served as the treasurer of the Hartford and New Haven Railroad Line until 1873 when the railroad was consolidated. A lifelong Democrat, he was elected to the Connecticut House of Representatives in 1863 and 1868, 
served five terms in the state Senate between 1872 and 77, and was the state treasurer in 1870. Well known in Hartford business circles, he attended Trinity College and was an organizer of the Hartford Trust Company, serving as president from 1868 to 79. After their marriage in 1870, the Ponts built a grand mansion on Prospect Avenue. The massive French Second Empire style house sported a mansard roof characteristic of the style. In 1870, Pond asked Frederick Law Olmsted, the father of American landscape architecture and the co designer of Central Park in New York, to assess the possibility of turning land on the city's western side, including Pond's own estate, into a public park. Olmsted responded enthusiastically. Here's what Olmsted wrote in a report to Pond in 1871. The advantages of Prospect Hill as an eminence, however, greatly surpass those offered at any other point which can be reached quickly and agreeably from all parts of the city. Whenever this hill is cut up by roads, the superb views which are now enjoyed from it will be lost to the public. If ground sufficient to afford a lookout at the top and to secure the control of the finest views should be taken, and this together with a portion of the meadow below it on the southeast and the beautiful woodlands about it, would combine to offer all that is required to complete a very fine park system. Charles M. Pond and his wife Elizabeth also loved gardens and trees and had formal gardens surrounding their home. The estate's landscaping is attributed to Thomas Brown McLooney, perhaps Hartford's first residential landscape gardener or landscape architect. Born in Scotland, McLooney studied at Edinburgh University. After stints designing gardens in Scotland and then estates along the Hudson River in the United States, he eventually came to Hartford. McLooney submitted a design in the competition for Bushnell Park. Although he did not win, his designs were used for the landscaping of the Connecticut State Capitol and the Connecticut State Hospital in Middletown. McLooney advertised as late as 1889 that he provided plans and specifications for parks, cemeteries, and private residences. We've just discovered a portrait of McLooney from his great great grandson, and that'll be used at Elizabeth Park in their Welcome Center. Charles M. Pond added land to his estate three times, eventually enlarging it to 90 acres. He continued his father's interest in farming, switching from cattle to horses, poultry, and tobacco. Pond bred famous trotters, which are horses. On Sunday afternoons, he hosted horse races around a dirt track near today's Rose Garden. In 1893, Reverend Francis Goodwin, a member of the city's Board of Park Commissioners, worked with Pond to leave his estate to the city as a park. Goodwin's slogan was, More Parks for Hartford. Pond died in 1894, leaving his estate, plus $100,000, for the park with the provision that it be named after his beloved wife, Elizabeth. Pond's generosity also included leaving the contents of his library to the YMCA, including over a thousand books, engravings, clocks, and a hundred stuffed birds. But the estate was not settled quietly or quickly. Charles Pond's brother Anson contested the will and testified in court that My brother was under the influence of liquor and morphine. He used both to excess and was often drunk, stupid, and unsteady. He believed he could speak to the dead and had mediums, seances, and Ouija boards. The city of Hartford ended up settling with Anson Pond for $87,500, worth about $2.7 million today. The Hartford Board of Park Commissioners opened Elizabeth Park on July 8, 1897. A year earlier, the board had hired Theodore Wirth as a first professional superintendent for the parks at an annual salary of $1,500. 
Born in Switzerland, Worth became an experienced horticulturalist with jobs in London, Paris, and New York City before coming to Hartford. Worth and his family lived on the second floor of the Pond Mansion. Under the auspices of the Park Department, a refreshment counter was opened on the first floor, and in 1902, a free library also operated from the house. Working with the Olmsted firm as consultants, Worth developed a master plan for Elizabeth Park that took advantage of all the gardens, trees, and buildings that came with the property. By 1897, Worth had created a welcoming city park with Victorian ornamental flower beds, trees, shrubs, winding roads, rustic bridges, and in the style of the Olmsted firm, picturesque vistas of the surrounding countryside. He moved existing farm buildings from Asylum Avenue, the major thoroughfare bordering the park on the north, to more central areas, and had new greenhouses erected in 1899 to aid with the plant nursery operations. Within three years, the new nursery had produced more than 240,000 plants. Worth had gained his experience in Europe as a commercial florist and gardener before emigrating to the United States in 1889 working in New Jersey as a rose gardener and private gardener, may have helped him make the decision to create a rose garden at Elizabeth Park. In 1903, construction started on the 1.25-acre rose garden in the shape of a square, with a vine-covered gazebo in the center. The rose garden opened in 1904 with 116 beds, each filled with 18 to 60 plants of a single variety. In 1912, a semicircular section was added to the south side to provide the first testing beds for the American Rose Society, and in 1937, a matching section was added to the north side, bringing the size of the garden to 2.5 acres. The Rose Garden immediately attracted thousands of visitors, with an estimated 215,000 visitors in 1906. Now let's talk to Elizabeth Park's Rosarian, Steve Scantinello, about America's first rose garden. Hey, Grading the Nutmeggers. We'll return to the episode in a moment, but I want to invite you to deepen your connection to Connecticut history with the CT Explored Inbox subscription. It's our brand new e-newsletter that sends you the latest stories, exhibitions, and program announcements. Lots of great stuff to enhance your Grading the Nutmeg experience right to your email inbox. Comes out every other week, just enough, not too much. Check it out at ctexplored.substack.com. It's free. And stay tuned at the end of the episode for a Grading the Nutmeg Extra, including details about how to hear a great talk that digs into the successes and epic failures of urban renewal in 1960s New Haven, coming up May 12th. Now, back to the episode. Stephen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Could you tell us what does a rosarian do? A rosarian has a very important job, and that's someone who's taking care of roses. And uh, as you know, in Elizabeth Park, there's quite a few roses to take care of. What would it have taken originally for Theodore Worth, the first park superintendent, to really install that first rose garden? He didn't have, you know, gas-powered tractors. And how would he approach that? And I, I imagine he probably encountered quite a few boulders, since it's, it is Connecticut. I imagine he would have had a whole crew of horse-drawn plows turning that soil under and probably using Mr. Pond's horse manure to get those roses to grow. And I I was told that that the actual gazebo hill was there originally, and that was where Mr. Pond used to watch his trotters. Is that true? That could be true because the earliest map I found 
uh, of the estate shows that oval for the trotters. And so if I was Mr. Pond, I would have sat in the middle. Yeah. So, um, but but they, they definitely had to have a lot of manpower and um, to dig up all, all that soil and, and get the garden ready for roses. Not to mention the planting of the roses. That's There are quite a few rose bushes put in that first season. I know. I think it was an, a full acre in size and had, uh, according to the records, 132 rose beds. Mm -hmm. And who knows how many rose bushes. Have you ever seen those beautiful arches used in another rose garden, public rose garden anywhere? Not not as much as they've been used here. In fact, that that is what always drew me to visit Elizabeth Park in the summer was to see the arches because we don't. The only other garden that I know of that has successfully used arches, not as many as Elizabeth Park, is the Cranford Rose Garden at Brooklyn Botanic Garden, where I used to work. And there the arches were an important part of the architecture. But here at Elizabeth Park, it is, the arches are Elizabeth Park and they are truly magnificent. It really is based on a um, European design of a rose garden. And there are gardens in Europe and France, especially that have lots of arches like this garden. That's so interesting because I know that Theodore Worth who designed Elizabeth Park's first general plan had come from Europe. I think he's maybe from Switzerland and had worked yeah. in Europe. So maybe that was part of the, his uh, romance with roses or something that he was thinking of. Yeah, I think so. I think when one thinks of roses and rose arches in Europe, the garden that comes to mind for me is um, La Rosarie de Lailly Les Roses, which is just south of Paris. And they have magnificent arches, very much in the style of Elizabeth Park. And that's an older, I think that garden was created at the end of the 19th century. I also read that he actually worked for a uh, rose grower, I think in New Jersey, actually. And I think that might have also given him the inspiration to create the rose garden. Now, how many types of roses are there now? Well, I'm actually, we're in full pruning mode right now. And once we're done pruning, I'll be able to, to physically count. And I plan to, to count all the heads, all the, all the bodies in the rose garden. We have 270 rose beds today and 75 arches. And that's a lot of rose bushes. What, one thing that I have done since I've started working there to make our garden a little more, uh, a little easier to maintain as far as disease and pest issues is to put less rose bushes in a bed. So the number that's often thrown around today are in older literature was 15,000 rose plants. And I don't think we're anywhere near that anymore, but we still have a large, large number of roses. Can you tell us about some of the, the varieties that you have? Because there's so many different, let alone colors, but so many different types of roses. Yeah, we actually have some really interesting varieties. Starting with the arches, you mentioned that Worth may have worked for a rose person in New Jersey, and I suspect he worked with somebody who created Rambling Roses, which was the style, the hot style of roses at that time. So when he was doing Elizabeth Park, creating the park, he put in arches to showcase those roses that were the hot item roses of the time. And one that's very prominent throughout the garden is a rose called Excelsa. 
It's a red cluster flower rose. And then there's also something called Crimson Rambler, which is another red flowered, red clustered flowered rose. But we have, um, due to some severe weather issues over the years and um, strange weather patterns, winter blizzards in October, um, we have lost a lot of the arches. We have been busy over the past several years replanting with, un with unusual ramblers that are um, one of a kind that belong in this garden. Now, everybody probably wants to know, what is that center gazebo covered with? Well, when I first came there, I thought, gee, what a great place for roses. But now that I feel the pain of pruning all the roses we have in the garden, I'm glad it's simply covered with Virginia creeper, which has been a great plant. It produces wonderful autumn foliage in the, in the autumn. That's redundant, isn't it? It produces wonderful autumn foliage. It's a great place for birds to hang out. I don't know if you've ever seen our red-tailed hawk. She sits on top of the gazebo, perfectly like a statue, watching for any rabbits and squirrels. So it's much. It's it's nice to have that green all went all summer, and then followed by the autumn foliage, and then you see the gazebo when the foliage drops. Now I think the rose bed went from maybe an acre originally to maybe two and a half acres now. And That's I correct. know over the years you've added the heritage garden and you've also been the site for, I think some of the test varieties. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about going from an acre to two and a half acres? Sure. Uh, the original garden was, was at square, I believe in the center of the garden. And then during the, oh, I say that, I think it was the early thirties. I'm not exactly sure when, but around the thirties, they added the what I call the two ends to the rose garden. So now it's a big oval shape as opposed to its original square shape. And they included more arches, many beds that were simply labeled test roses, meaning we didn't know what they were going to be or if they were going to remain in the collection. But basically every bed has one variety of rose. We still today in, in 2021 have three or maybe four beds that were planted in 1904. And those four, those three varieties, there's three beds. Those three varieties are um, Madame Charles Wood, Michelon, and oh, this is this is testing my knowledge here on my memory. Third bed is Madame Caroline Testu. And that rose was actually um, creating shockwaves throughout France because apparently Madame Caroline Testu took it upon herself to have a rose named for her. And she was a hat maker and she um, used the rose to advertise her business. And it was that was not something a proper woman in Paris would do, but she did it. And her rose still exists today in the same place it was planted in 1904, as do the other two, Michelin and Madame Charles Wood. So I'm really glad that we still have a piece of the original garden within the garden. I like the fact that as a hat maker, she was also very entrepreneurial to get a rose named after her. You can imagine <laughs> I, what they were whispering about her behind her back. I can appreciate that. <laughs> but um, now just from the names of those roses, you can tell that roses are considered really the aristocrat of the garden world. What kind of arms and legs does it take to take care of all these roses and what kind of help do you need? Oh, um, well, we have, we have this season, we have four really good seasonal gardeners. 
and our head gardener, Peter Winnie, and myself. And we have been holding pruning workshops this year to lure volunteers in and help us prune. So we've been very successful in, in gaining some new volunteers, and we truly rely heavily on the, the help from volunteers. And we don't limit what they can do. We, we find out just how far they want to go with the plants, and we give them every opportunity to learn and to, to, to experience um, how the roses will evolve during the season. So today, today this week, we're deadheading. Um, the next big chore will be planting roses and then the never ending job of weeding and, and the weeds love to grow within the rose bush. So it's a, it's a real challenge to be free of weeds. So I know that the roses, their, their peak is really considered sort of mid June to mid July. How else do you keep them in shape for the rest of the season? Yeah, we, we always tell people that if you want to see the arches in full bloom, they usually, they start pretty reliably on, on the summer solstice and they continue blooming through middle of July. But the other roses, because, and, and, and most of the ramblers are indeed once a season bloomers. So once they finish blooming, we start deadheading and cleaning them up and training them again for next year. But the other rose beds are predominantly continuous flowering rose shrubs but they need to be deadheaded as the flowers fade. And that's another job the volunteers are, are joining us on. And by deadheading, we mean removing faded blooms. And then we get a longer blooming season. As it gets hotter, the roses slow down as we do. And then once the cool autumn evenings kick in, then we start seeing a fantastic bloom cycle. And, and it's always good to come visit around Columbus Day to see the, the autumn flush. So uh, the, our latest addition to the park is the Heritage Rose Collection or Heritage Rose Garden, which is a garden of roses that are very, very, very old varieties. Some of them date back to the 16th century, and they are still in use today um, in gardens, and they are especially tolerant of cold winters. So when the Connecticut Valley Garden Club offered to sponsor this rose garden, we, we, we went with it, and it's now... The Heritage Rose Garden is a beautiful collection of some rare and other other common heritage roses that, that are suitable for Connecticut's climate. In addition to that, we have you can actually walk from the Heritage Rose Garden into the Shade Garden and Rock Garden, and that connects very easily to the Perennial Garden, which is in the current stage of revamping. And then over the hedge, there's the magnificent annual garden, which first is our tulip garden. And then on the other side of our cottage, where the offices are, are the um, beautiful original Lord and Burnham greenhouses, which, where we house our winter um, garden show, which has just ended. And adjacent to that is the Iris collection, sponsored by the Iris Society. Dahlia plantings sponsored by the Dahlia Society and a beautiful herb garden that is uh, maintained by the Connecticut Herb Society. And there's one bed in the herb collection that's sponsored by St. Joseph's University. It's a medicinal garden, plants of medicinal use. There are so many fabulous places and nooks and crannies literally around the park. I want to thank you so much, Stephen, for sharing all your information 
and we will direct people to go to your website at Elizabeth Park Conservancy to see more examples and more videos from Stephen. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I, I look forward to, to seeing you in the garden. Elizabeth Park continues to be a hub of activity. In 1906, Charles A. Parker was appointed Hartford's park superintendent, having served as the superintendent for Hartford's Keeney Park for 10 years. Concentrating on the benefits of active recreation, Parker was responsible for introducing courts and fields for organized athletic events and for leading efforts to move children's play out of the streets and into parks and playgrounds. Immigrant and poor children in downtown Hartford often played in a multitude of unsupervised games in Hartford streets. And as automobile traffic grew, such play became increasingly dangerous. Parker argued in 1912 that the city should provide a playground in every neighborhood that had at least 600 children or more under the age of 12. By 1918, Elizabeth Park held the only year-round playground in Hartford, located on the East Lawn. As the park was just about two miles from the city center, Hartford's trolley lines brought visitors there from all over the city. Elizabeth Park's first formal athletic facilities appeared between 1908 and 11, when Parker added baseball diamonds and a football gridiron to the former sheep pasture. Ice skating, both for figure skating and hockey, was encouraged. Curling, lawn bowling, tennis, and croquet became popular sports in the 19-teens and 20s. Parker added a full-size curling pond in 1912 and a lawn bowling green in 1914. Tennis courts were introduced in 1914, and the park's first croquet matches were held. Although the park now offered many opportunities for sports, the gardens were not neglected. In 1911, four new gardens were added, including those for alpine plants, perennials, and evergreens and shrubs. Beginning with the stock market crash of 1929 and continuing until the start of World War II, city finances were strained. Funding for new projects in the parks shifted to federal emergency work programs like the Works Progress Administration, the WPA, which from 1935 to 1942 provided funding to states and municipalities to undertake construction projects that would put unemployed men to work. George Hollister, Hartford's third park superintendent, took full advantage of the WPA program to undertake infrastructure projects. Now, we've just heard a lot about infrastructure. Infrastructure projects such as drainage and road paving, along with the construction of new buildings. Hollister announced in 1936 that the Rose Garden would be enlarged by the WPA at no cost to the city. Otherwise expensive building materials were salvaged from old buildings or demolitions to cut costs. The Hartford Current in 1935 reported that the bricks used in the new lawn bowling clubhouse, which is still there, were taken from an old building at Hartford's Northeast School. The Comfort Station was built by the WPA in 1939, of rich brownstone with a slate roof, reminiscent of English architecture. The designer, Hartford architect Russell Barker, designed dozens of nearby homes and schools. Barker had worked for both the city and the state park departments. Born in Hartford, he was trained as a draftsman in Hartford's architectural firms before becoming a licensed architect. He was paid $200 for the architectural drawings for the comfort station, costing a total of $35,429, with $22,713 coming from the WPA program. The building opened in 1940. 
Unused in recent years, the building was adaptively reused in 2020 as the Visitor Center, a $1 million investment that will serve the public for decades. In 1954, landscape architect and rosarian Everett Peister became park superintendent. In the same year, the landmark Pond Mansion was condemned and demolished, despite vigorous opposition. This is the question that they hear most often at Elizabeth Park, is what happened to the beautiful Pond Mansion? And I have a feeling that if it was under consideration today, we wouldn't approve of demolishing it. But a new multi-purpose building was built, now the Pond House Cafe in 1959. By 1970, with the city's population at a 20-year low, support for the parks declined. And in 1977, the historic Rose Garden was threatened. But help was on the way. Friends of Elizabeth Park formed and immediately began fundraising to save and improve the park. In 1983, Elizabeth Park was listed on the National Register of Historic Places. The Friends became the Elizabeth Park Conservancy in 2012. The successful public-private partnership between the owner, the City of Hartford, and the nonprofit conservancy has invested in the park to maintain the gardens, restore the buildings, add new amenities, and provide the public with education and arts programs. Looking to spend a day outdoors? Start at the Garmony Visitor Center to learn more about the park. Then take a stroll around the 100 acres brimming with gardens of many types, perennials, shade plants, roses, dahlias, as well as the herb garden. Get lunch or a snack at the Pond House Cafe and enjoy the pond view from the patio. Interested in tennis or lawn bowling? Go for it. All this beauty and fun due to the generosity of Hartford businessman Charles M. Pond over 100 years ago. This is Mary Donahue for Grading the Nutmeg. Here's a Grading the Nutmeg Extra. Go to our website, ctexplored.org, for a transcript of this episode, and you can sign up for our free e-newsletter, CT Explored Inbox. Mark your calendar for May 12, 2021, 6 p.m., to hear Harvard professor Elizabeth Cohen speak about saving America's cities, Ed Logue, New Haven, and beyond. We'll have a link to register in our April 15th e-newsletter, or visit newhavenmuseum.org. To find out more about two other public rose gardens in Connecticut, the Veterans Memorial Rose Garden in Mohegan Park in Norwich and the Pardee Rose Garden in East Rock Park in Hamden, go to the Connecticut Explored website and search for our story, We're Coming Up Roses. Want to know more about Connecticut's landmarks, museums, art, and history? Subscribe to Connecticut Explored Magazine and today in cthistory.com. This episode was produced by Mary Donahue, assistant publisher of Connecticut Explored and engineered by Patrick O'Sullivan. Please join us again for the next episode of Grading the Nutmeg.